Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 168, Hamilton's Financial Plan. Firstly, let's get the obvious out of the way. I'm recovering very well from my fall, um, and thank you for all the nice messages that I've had. Uh, It's been very kind. But it's been now quite a few months since we've had an episode, so let's just get straight back into it, shall we? Last time out, we covered the establishment of the early federal government, and started exploring Hamilton's desire to recreate the British financial system. Today, we'll start to get into how Hamilton set about achieving it. Within days of taking his office as Secretary of the Treasury, Hamilton reported to Congress that he viewed one of the most pressing matters facing the nation as credit. Five months later, because he was Hamilton, he submitted a 40,000-page report on it to Congress. So, what was the issue with credit, and why was it important? To put it simply, the United States was in significant debt. In episode 154, you might remember me saying that the United States was $12 million in debt, mostly owed to the French, a figure which was up from $8 million in 1783. If you do remember me saying that, firstly, well done, you have an astounding memory. But also, the thing to remember is that I was talking specifically about foreign debt. Yes, those $12 million were owed to foreign bankers, but there was much more owed to US citizens. The state governments owed about $25 million of domestic debt, while the federal government owed about $42 million. The total added up to... $79 million. This was what kept Hamilton up at night. Now, Hamilton, and everybody else at the time, thought that foreign debt needed to be paid off, but the domestic debt was more complicated. There were suggestions that a portion of the debt could be repudiated, but Hamilton was against this idea. He didn't want to do anything that would harm the national credit. What Hamilton wanted was to firstly have the federal government assume the debts held by the states. If they'd assume the debts, the union gets a new line of credit, a financial diuretic. It would also mean that the states no longer needed to raise taxes to pay their debts, a cause of the turbulence of the critical period in the 1780s. Hamilton would then combine the separate debts into a single debt, and create new government securities. Rather than paying off the debt completely, they would only need to pay off the interest, which would build confidence in American credit. To help give people more confidence in the plan, Hamilton also wanted to create a sinking fund. A sinking fund is money set aside for the paying off of the debt, so that the body which owes it has the money available. It tends to lower the risk of defaulting. This made it look like the government would actually pay off the debt, which is what most people wanted, although Hamilton intended this to be for show. He didn't actually want to pay off the national debt, because that would destroy its usefulness. What Hamilton wanted was the United States to become the most attractive investment opportunity in the world. The Federalists could certainly see the benefits to the plan. It would strengthen the national government, and continue to move people away from relying on the states. Washington hoped that the states would have no need to tax citizens, with the only taxation coming from the Union. 
Now, credit was one of four components of Hamilton's financial plan. The next one we need to look at is a national bank. In 18th century America, banks were unfamiliar to most of the population. Nothing like the financial system which operated in Britain, or which most people are familiar with today, existed. Back in 1781, the Confederation Congress created the Bank of North America in Philadelphia, with three more opening shortly after in New York, Boston and Baltimore. But what Hamilton was proposing was a national bank, the Bank of the United States, or BUS. The BUS would have a 20-year charter and was capitalised at $10 million, which is more than all the gold and silver in the country. Of this, $2 million was funded by the national government, with $8 million coming from private investors, who had to pay at least a quarter in gold and silver, but the rest could be in government securities. It would be the only national bank. It could loan money to the United States, control the state banks, be a tool for taxes and duties, act as a central depository, and it would have the power to print money. During the episodes on the critical period of the 1780s, we discussed how the states were suffering due to a lack of adequate currency, and this would fix the problem. It would hold its value against gold and silver, despite only a fraction of the notes circulating being covered by real gold and silver. This is another concept which is accepted without question today, but was not in the 1780s. John Adams said, quote, Every dollar of a bank hill that is issued beyond the quantity of gold and silver in the vaults represents nothing and is therefore a cheat upon somebody. End quote. Hamilton intended that the bank would make money available mainly in terms of short-term loans, so merchants. However, over time, as we shall see over the course of this series, long-term loans to farmers would be a massive driving factor for credit. The third part of the plan was the least controversial, a national mint. I just touched on the issues that the states were facing due to a lack of hard currency, and this led to a wide circulation in foreign money, particularly English and Spanish. Hamilton's plans received almost no opposition, although it's worth saying that very little of his actual proposal, which was submitted to Congress in January 1791, was actually original. The most intriguing part of Hamilton's financial plan was the fourth part, on manufacturing. It was by some margin the longest of his reports, and in hindsight, it seems to resemble a plan for industrialising the United States. There was a belief among Federalists that the United States needed to advance from being an agricultural economy. They were already producing more agricultural products than could be consumed by Americans, and needed to rebalance the economy. They were also purchasing manufactured goods from Europe. This had always been an issue with the economy in the colonial era, and the Federalists saw an opportunity to correct it. This would be a long-term goal, something to take place over decades, and so his actual proposals ended up being more modest. Hamilton also believed that internal trade could be just as prosperous as international trade, another bold idea for the time. Hamilton ended up proposing protective tariffs to safeguard new industries. 
This would help grow American industry while not raising costs for consumers due to foreign goods in these new industries' low price. He would also support the merchants through bounties in more established industries. These were direct payments to businesses and tended to support industries involved in exporting. While Hamilton wanted to promote internal trade, it would not be at the expense of international trade. Now, it's important that we don't get carried away here. Hamilton was making radical suggestions at the time, and did accurately predict the future importance of both manufacturing and internal trade, there are caveats to all of this. Firstly, Hamilton had his own interests at work here. Hamilton had private interests that were promoted by this. He also got the basic premise wrong. While Hamilton was correct in thinking that America must industrialise, he had a federalist mindset. He was only able to envision this as something created from the top down, rather than from the bottom up in the form of thousands of ambitious artisans. Hamilton's views, indeed the federalist views, of a hierarchical society and a powerful federal government were all over his financial plans. You can't easily separate the economic from the political. Once Hamilton started submitting his proposals to Congress, there quickly arose opposition. Hamilton expected this, but he did not expect where the sharpest opposition would come from. Madison. The long-time allies were quickly realising they had very different visions of what their versions of nationalism looked like. Madison had predicted one of the big factors in this during the Constitutional Convention. While the smaller states feared being overwhelmed by the bigger states, Madison thought that future disagreements would be sectional between the different sections or regions of the United States. In the initial disputes over the financial plan, it is easy to tell that Hamilton was representing New York, while Madison represented Virginia. The issue was around credit. Madison was not supposed to fund a debt, but was concerned around who would be paid. The original holders of the debt, or those who presently held it. Virginians were annoyed that the original holders of the debt, including Virginians, would not be paid, while northern speculators would be. Hamilton wouldn't go along with this, partly due to the administrative headache it would present, but also to avoid contract breaches. Madison's attempted amendment was defeated in the House. 36 votes to 13. This was only the start of the debate over state debts. Massachusetts, Connecticut and South Carolina collectively held almost half of the $25 million of state debts and desperately wanted the federal government to assume the debt. However, Virginia, Maryland and Georgia had already paid off a large portion of their debt and were unhappy at the idea of paying federal taxes to support the other states. The debate raged for six months and wound up in complete gridlock, with the Senate supporting assumption of state debts and the House opposing it. The solution for this may surprise you. Two Virginians and an immigrant walk into a room, diametrically opposed, foes. They emerge with a compromise having opened doors that were previously closed, bros. The immigrant emerges with unprecedented financial power, a system he can shape however he wants. The Virginians emerge with the nation's capital. While the debate had been raging about state debts, another debate was going on about the national capital. 
The Confederation Congress had moved around, finally settling in New York, and the Constitution had determined that an area would be ceded by the states for a federal capital, but where this should be could not be agreed. The New England states and New York wanted the capital in New York. The Mid-Atlantic states wanted the capital near Pennsylvania, and the Southern states wanted it on the Potomac, halfway between Maine and Georgia. Madison had spent months slowly relenting on the federal assumption of states' debts, and in June 1790, Jefferson arranged dinner between Hamilton and Madison to come to an arrangement. Both sides were keen to come to a compromise. Protecting the Union was their highest interest. The paths were diverging, but Hamilton and Madison were both still nationalists, and so an agreement was made. The southern states would support federal assumption of state debts, and the northern states would support having a permanent capital city on the Potomac, and for ten years the capital city would temporarily move from New York to Philadelphia. With these issues resolved, Madison and Hamilton swiftly moved on to fighting over the National Bank. There was widespread scepticism against the bank. Many did not share Hamilton's desire for recreating the British financial system, and they feared the potential for corruption. Madison didn't like the bank, but his core criticism was that it was unconstitutional. The Constitution did not specifically give the federal government the power to establish a national bank, so it could not do so. When Congress passed the bank bill in February 1791, Washington had quite a dilemma over what to do. Attorney General Edmund Randolph and Secretary of State Jefferson both argued that it was unconstitutional. Washington seriously considered vetoing it and did ask Madison to prepare for this, but he also gave the critiques over to Hamilton, who spent a week preparing a response. Hamilton's constitutional argument centred on the necessary and proper clause in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. Quote, the Congress shall have the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. End quote. This was the perfect argument to convince Washington. Hamilton wrote, quote, The United States would furnish the singular spectacle of a political society without sovereignty, or of a people governed without government. End quote. Washington signed the bill. Hamilton had won the battle for his financial plan. He got what he wanted. The federal government assumed the state debts and would fund this debt to provide it with funds. It established a national bank, the Bank of the United States, which was chartered for 20 years in Philadelphia. He established a national mint for the creation of currency, and he passed legislation to protect and nurture American manufacturing. While we focused here on the economic rationale for Hamilton's financial plan, there was also a political side of it too. You must remember that in the early Republic, America was a very thinly populated agricultural country. If you'll forgive a few statistics, you'll get the idea very quickly by looking at the census of 1790. The total population of the United States was just over 3.9 million people, including around 700,000 slaves. 
Virginia was the largest state by some distance, having a population of 750,000, including 300,000 slaves. This was followed by Massachusetts at 380,000. Georgia only had a population of 82,000, and Delaware under 60,000. The population was spreading into the West, but Kentucky only had a population of 73,677, while the Northern and Southwestern Territories had a combined population of 35,691. In terms of individual cities, only six had a population above 10,000. New York, New York had 33,131. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania had 28,522. Boston, Massachusetts had 18,320. Charleston, South Carolina had 16,359. Baltimore, Maryland had 13,503. And Norwalk, Connecticut had 11,942. The largest town in the West, Lexington, Kentucky, had a population of 834. That's only a few more than live in my apartment complex. This was a small population, about the equivalent of the combined population of Manhattan and Queens in 2023, but spread over the continent from Maine to Georgia. Trying to turn this scattered population into a nation was the preoccupation of the Federalists in the 1790s. The Federalists believed this went hand in hand with the hierarchical society. They believed that as America moved further from the Revolution, a natural aristocracy would emerge of disinterested gentlemen who would be able to govern effectively. From his position in the Treasury Department, Hamilton was perfectly placed to unite these various ambitions. He had hundreds of offices to fill with appointees, plenty of customs officials and revenue agents. He could use this position of patronage to appoint figures around the country. These figures would then be tied to the national government rather than the states, and would be interested in supporting the national government, and the Federalists believed that it would naturally filter down to the rest of society. It certainly seemed to have soul-binding impact, with more anti-Federalist appointees later joining the Federalist Party rather than Jefferson's Democratic-Republicans, which you might expect to be their natural political home. During the 1790s, Friends of Government groups formed. These were patronage networks, but had their foundations on the federal level, reaching down into localities. This ensured the isolation of local elites who were not part of a national network. Another federalist option for increasing attachment to the national government was the military. The federal government needed to enforce its authority, it couldn't risk another Shays' rebellion, but the more immediate threat came from abroad. The British still held forts in Canada and the Northwest, while to the South the Spanish were a significant threat. The Spanish had taken control of Louisiana following the Seven Years' War, primarily interested in providing a buffer to Mexico, a buffer which was weakened as American settlers moved into the region. To slow the rate of expansion, in 1784 the Spanish blocked American trade on the Mississippi River. As the Americans tried to reverse this, sectional differences soon became apparent. The merchants of the Northeast wanted trade with the Spanish, while the Southern farmers wanted access to the Mississippi. Each was willing to sacrifice the other 
to get what they wanted. It was in this atmosphere that fears arose of a Spanish conspiracy, which turned out to actually be true. The Spanish dealt with American settlers in Tennessee and Kentucky, as well as paying American officials such as James Wilkinson, who was being funded by the Spanish while he was the senior officer of the United States Army. Jefferson and Madison were alarmed in the direction Hamilton was taking things, and would set about organising opposition to Hamilton. But that is the future, and so we'll leave it here for this week. Thanks for listening, I'll see you next time.